for we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. Melts the clouds of sin and sadness. Thank you for joining us for this program from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleville, Alabama. We hope that you will subscribe and will share our program with others. Now, we take you to the service of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. Go ahead and get your Bibles and open them to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, that is where we're going to jump in and start. We're going to look at John chapter 9 and John chapter 10 this morning. As you kind of get there and you're kind of looking at that passage with me, uh, one of the things that I want you to kind of to realize as we kind of dig into this, this text today is you've heard me say it a couple of times that sometimes I'm not always the biggest fan of chapter breaks in, in the Bible, that chapter breaks are not inspired, verse numbers are not inspired, those are man-made things that we've put into the Scriptures uh, just for organization, you know, just to help us because otherwise, if I said John chapter 10 and there were no chapters, you'd all be trying to, I'd be like, okay, go to the verse that starts with these words, you know, and we'd all have to try to figure out where we're going this morning. But John chapter 9 and John chapter 10 are one big story that I want us to look at together this morning, and you're going to see how they kind of play into each other and how the beginning of chapter 9 really rolls into the beginning of chapter 10, and we're going to get to that in a minute, but I want you to kind of be ready and sitting there uh, and just kind of on go as we, as we get there. But I want to ask you this question first. I want to ask you this question first. Where is home? Think about that question for just a moment. Where is home? There's probably a lot of different things that, that come, to, come to mind right now. Let me, let me think. Okay, let me, let me ask this. Uh, when, I, when I say, where is home, how many of you go to somewhere in your mind other than where you live right this moment? Like a where is home, do you think of somewhere other than where you live right this moment? Okay, so for some of us, even though we live somewhere, in our mind, that doesn't 100%, I'm not saying it doesn't to some degree, but that doesn't 100% represent home. For some of you, when you go, when you, when you think of the question of where is home, maybe you think of where you grew up. You think of your hometown. How many of you, your hometown is somewhere other than where you currently live right here, right now? Okay, so, so a handful of us. And you know, it's, um, I, I've always told people I kind of claim dual citizenship. Uh, I was born in Florence and lived there until I was 10 and still have gr uh, great memories of, of that house and that time and, 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 though, and, and the Jackson Heights Church that we went to. And I still remember things from that. Then I was 10, we moved to Savannah, Tennessee. So I claim dual citizenship. If it benefits me more to be from Alabama, I'm from Alabama. If it benefits me more in the conversation to be from Tennessee, I'm from Tennessee. That's what dual citizenship's about, right? Uh, for us, after that, though, especially for me in my life, okay? So about 15 years ago, um, my mom and dad, they separated. And dad uh, moved out um, one day. And then a few days later, mom and my sister moved out. I was uh, living at home. My brother was at college, but I was... I was back at home for a little while. And so one day I wake up and everybody is at home. And then three days later I wake up and I'm the only one at home. And from that point on, that house 
that I had grown up in from 10 years old to I think I was like 21 or 22 at that point was never really ever home ever again. And from that point, I moved to Florence and I lived in a couple of places in Florence and then Blair and I got married and we kind of had a habit of maybe house jumping a little bit. So over the next you know, 11 years of our marriage, we uh, lived in three different houses in uh, McMinnville. Then we moved to Arkansas. No, we lived in two houses in McMinnville. Then we moved to Arkansas, lived in three houses there, moved to Kingston, lived in two houses there. Um, and then since we moved here, we've lived in a rent house. But then we finally bought our house, which has for the first time really in uh, our lives in a long, long time, we actually feel like we are home. You know, it is our home. We've actually got a picture, and I meant to put it up on the screen, but I forgot to. We've got a picture uh, from the day that we closed on the house of all four kids sitting in front of the house, and they're holding a sign, and it says, Welcome to our home. I think that's what it says, right? Something like that. Welcome to our home. And it was something that Blair and I had been wanting and longing for for so many years because, because of her family dynamics and my family dynamics home where we grew up really didn't exist anymore. We had our hometowns, but that center base of operation where you can still go to and, and have your family and all these things, those, those weren't represented for us in that way in our family. And so we had been working toward making that for ourselves for so long. And we finally get it, we finally accomplish it. And it just feels good for us at times to just say, hey, we're going home. But when you think of home, you probably think of a lot of different things, right? You think of memories, you think of meals, uh, you think of family members, those that you love, and maybe even some of those that you don't love, you know, that you only see at Christmas and Thanksgiving. You're like, whoo, we got through those two hours. We don't have to look at them or deal with them till next year, you know. And so, but home is a very, very special place. Home is a place we always long for. Home is a place that when we're not there, we always miss. How many of you love going on vacation? How many of you love going on vacation? How many of you are ready to go home after vacation? That's just the way that life works. And as we open up this story today, as we open up this story today, although you're going to look at the headings, and in, at least in my, in my Bible, and yours may say something similar, the headings, like I said, these are man-made, of chapter 9 says, Jesus heals a man born blind. Then it goes on, it says, the Pharisees investigate the healing. That's chapter 9. And then in verse, or chapter 10, mine says, the good shepherd and his sheep. And those are the three kind of sections that we've named. But I think as we go through this this morning, what, what I think we can pull from it and learn and hear is this idea, is that Jesus is the door to your forever home. Jesus is the door to your forever home. I want you to kind of keep that thought in mind, and I want you to go with me, and let's start. We're going to break down some things in chapter 9, and that's going to lead us into our main text of chapter 10. But let's read the beginnings of chapter 9 together, and if, um, if uh, we'll just kind of, who's up there? Nathan, follow along with me up there as I read here, and when I stop, you can stop, and when I start, you can start. We'll see if we can match that up. So we start talking about Jesus here. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, 
that he was born blind. So there's this idea that kind of goes on and goes around in the culture of the day that really one of the main reasons that bad things might happen to you is because you did something bad. That sin is, is a punishment, if you will, okay? That, that's something that we don't necessarily believe in. That's something that we don't necessarily teach. But that was a very real thing that these people kind of had woven into their... Um, their belief system that this young man, I mean, we understand the, the science of, of things, right? We understand uh, the genetics of things a lot more than, than these people would have. And we understand that sometimes there are just, you, you are born certain ways and it's a genetic thing, it's a scientific thing. But to them, the only reason this guy would have been blind would have been as a result of something he did or a punishment of something that his parents did. So they're looking at this guy and they're asking a sincere question. Hey, Jesus, why, why was this guy born blind? They're, they're trying to figure it out. And so Jesus starts back in verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened to him so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me, not his coming, when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he said to him, wash in the pool of Siloam. The word meant sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now, I love kind of what's going on here because for starters, does Jesus have to put mud in this guy's eyes? No. Does, does Jesus have to make him go wash in the pool somewhere else. No, because Jesus heals blind people on the spot in other stories, right? Right then, right there. But I love what's happening here as, as you weave these two chapters together. Jesus sees this man, his, his disciples see this guy. They ask the question, what, what, what's wrong? What's the cause of this? And this blind guy, I, this is just Matthew trying to put the scene together. This blind guy's just sitting there or standing there, and he knows everybody's talking about him, right? He can't see what's going on. He can't see what's going on, but he can hear what's happening. And then all of a sudden, somebody, he has no idea this is fixing to happen. Now, how would you react? All of a sudden, he just feels mud being just caked onto his face. Now, how would you react to that, first off? That would, be, that would be a very weird moment, right? That'd be a very strange moment if you're sitting there and your eyes are closed or you're blind and you hear people talking about you and then all of a sudden there's just mud just, just on your face. And then the next thing that Jesus says to this guy is what? Go do what? Go wash it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. He never tells the guy to go wash so that he can see, right? never tells him that. It's almost like Jesus is just, Jesus knows what's happening. Jesus, Jesus gets what's going on. This guy is just told, hey, now go wash your face, which doesn't seem like a huge stretch because someone's just rubbed mud all over his face, right? Right, so hey, I've just rubbed mud on your face, now go wash your face. That's not a huge stretch. But what, is the last, what does the last thing say here? So the man went and washed, and what? Came home. But up to this point in our story, and I want you to catch this, because it's going to connect to chapter 10. 
Has he seen Jesus? No, but what has he done? He has heard the voice of Jesus, right? The only way he can identify in any way who Jesus is is by his what? Voice. Now, if you know the rest of the story, you, you already see the connection. If not, you're going to get there with us all. We're all going to get there, okay? So, we got this guy. He's at home. He's seeing now. Uh, he comes home, and I know it's got to be a great moment, so we, we keep on going. Um, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging, they're asking this question, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? They're, they're confused about what's going on here, and understandably so. They're trying to figure it out. Isn't this the guy that used to sit and beg? Someone claims that it was. Others say, no, he only looks like him, but he himself insisted, I am the man. So he's like, hey, it's me. I used to be this. Now this is what I am. I used to be that. This is what I am now. He's like, it's me. How then were your eyes open, they asked. Fair question. Don't you agree? Completely fair question. How were your eyes open? He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes, and he told me to go wash in the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, he said, they asked. I don't know, he said. Okay, so that's the beginning of our story. Should this, let me ask you, should this be a moment of celebration? Should this be a moment of celebration? Yes, absolutely. And this guy, I believe when they start questioning him, I would just have to say if it was me. If it was me. And these people are like, hey, are you the guy? Are you the guy? I would be jumping up and down. Yes, it's me. Look, listen, I'm telling you, this happened. Don't know how it happened. Don't know what all took place to make it happen. But I was sitting there. I heard these people talking about me. All of a sudden, there's mud on my face. God tells me, hey, go wash in the, in, in the, in the pool over here. So I get up and go wash. And when I get it all washed off, by the time I got home, I could see. It is a, it is a day of celebration in this man's life. But we're going to fast forward a few more verses. And now all of a sudden, we're in the presence of the religious leaders. We're in the presence of the Pharisees. And they don't like what's going on. Because you see, what they're trying to do is they're trying to outlaw Jesus, if you will. They're trying to do everything they can to keep Jesus from gaining any followers, from gaining any credit for anything, because they're all about God, right? Or are they all about control? They're really all about control. They want God. They want God. And they want you to have God, but they want to dish God out to you as they see fit. And if you're worthy, and, and if you um, qualify for it, if you will. And so we'll, we'll, we'll get down to some verses on the screen here in just a second. But you start in verse 13, and they brought this guy in, and they're questioning him. And so they, they get to the point, though, Go with me to verse 18, that they're really going to question it. They're going to, they're going to go back to maybe the source a little bit, and they're going to bring in his parents. Okay, well, let's, I'm not sure if this, is, if this guy's really telling, he might be lying. You know, this might be something that Jesus, this Jesus guy's trying to, to, to make seem is real, but really isn't real. So they bring in mom and dad. So they're going to question mom and dad. Uh, they still do not believe, verse 18, that he had been blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you saw was bl born blind? How is it that he can now see? Verse 20. I don't know if I went that far. Verse 20. 
We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how can he see now? Or who opened his eyes? We do not know. Ask him. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. You know what his mom and dad just did? They just threw him under the bus. They just threw him under the bus. Hey, is this your son? Yeah, it's our son. How did this happen? I don't know. He's a grown man. Ask him how it happened. Why did they do that? And this is in verse 22 is an important part of this whole story. Verse of chapters 9 and 10. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Read that again if you've got your Bibles open with me. His parents said, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Let's remix that a little bit. They had already decided that anybody who accepted Jesus and followed him would be kicked out of the family. They'd be kicked out of the house. They'd lose their place in their home. You see, the synagogues, the, the religious leaders of the time, you could be a part of the family of the Jewish church, if you will, as long as you did it their way. As long as you followed their rules and did what they wanted you to do. And that is where all the support was. That's where all the care was. That's where all the love was. That's where all the comfort, when you needed something, that's, we talk about it, when you need something, lean on your church family. That was their, that was their support. And they were so afraid, even though they should have been celebrating what's happened to their son, they're so afraid that if we celebrate it, if we admit that Jesus is who Jesus said he is, then they're going to throw us out of the family. They're going to throw us out of the house. So uh, go on down to verse 34. So the guy, they question the guy again, and he tells them everything that's happened. All right, and it says, To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So mom and dad threw him under the bus. He's standing there through the rest of chapter 9 in this section, defending himself and defending what's happened. Did this man do anything? I mean, really, what did this man do? The only thing this man did was went and washed his face, right? Jesus did everything else. He's not really guilty of doing anything but going and washing his face. And because of that, he was healed by Jesus. And he's just telling a story. He's just telling what's happened. He's not trying to promote anybody's way of life. He's not trying to promote anybody's agenda. He's just saying, hey, I don't know how this happened, but this guy Jesus did this to me, and now I can see. And because of that, they're scared to death. They don't want to give Jesus any power, any credit. They don't want him to come in and be the guy that's in charge anymore. They want all the power. So what do they do to, to kind of squish out all of it? What are they going to do? Kick him out of the house. Kick him out of the family. I love verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. How do you feel when you hear that someone's picking on someone in your family? When someone's picking on someone in your family, do you have the rule that you can pick on people in your family, but no one else can pick on people in your family, right? That's how it is. Okay, I, I, can, I can be mean to you all day long, 
But if someone else is mean to you, then, then, then we've got problems. And, and that's, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And Jesus is like, okay, we're fixing to have a problem. So look at what he does first. And when he found him. And when he found him. What does that mean Jesus did? He looked for him. When he heard that they had kicked him out, Jesus went and looked for him. This guy in this whole story has done nothing except wash his face. And in the day that everybody should be excited and in the day that everybody should love and be so happy, no one is thinking about anybody but themselves except for Jesus. Jesus is the only person in this story that shows any care, any compassion, and any love for this blind man. And so he walks up to him and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? So Jesus went and found him. And remember, he still hadn't seen Jesus yet. He, I mean, he, he still doesn't recognize Jesus yet. He goes, who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he what? Worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would have not been guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. Now our Bibles stop and do a chapter break right there, and it's easy to just stop there and then pick up the next chapter and kind of go on into kind of a little bit of a different direction. But that's really... That's really not what happens. It's a continual conversation here. So for the sake of our discussion, just pretend verse chapter 10 doesn't start and chapter 9 just keeps going. So he's still in this conversation with these Pharisees. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all the sheep, oh, I'm sorry, when he has brought out all his own and goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follows him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Now, so here we have a blind man Mud wiped all over his face. He goes and watches his face. He can see the Pharisees are questioning him. They're trying to figure out what's going on. He believes in Jesus. They throw him out. And now all of a sudden Jesus is talking about sheep. Where's the connection? Well, the first connection is, the, is understanding the culture. Okay, Let's understand the culture for a moment. In the city, in all the cities, there would have been a community sheep pen. Big community sheep pen that as you brought your flock in, you lead them into the sheep pen, and there is a gatekeeper there, and his job is to stand there at the gate, and, and all your sheep go in, and, and, and all of the other shepherd sheep, they all go in. And what's he saying here is he's saying, if you're the shepherd, what you have the ability to do is your sheep know your voice so well that you're able to go stand at the gate. The gatekeeper opens the gate, and you just start talking, and your sheep perk up. And they go, oh, that's our shepherd. And what do they start doing? They start following. Follow right out the gate. Follow right out of the sheep pen. 
and he says, you guys are, this is what he's trying to tell them, you guys are acting as if you're the ones in charge of all the sheep. These aren't your sheep. He says, matter of fact, you guys are the ones that have snuck in and you're causing the problems. And you think that you get to decide who stays and who goes. You think that you are the access point to God. That's what he's accusing them of. You think you're the access point to God when really you're the problem. So he tells them that story. And this is what verse 6 says. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said it again. You ever had this conversation with your kids? You're trying to explain, you're trying to be nice and nicely explain something to them, and like it just goes right over their head, and you're like, okay, just let me be blunt about it. Okay? Just let me say what I need to say to get my point across. And that's what he's fixing to do. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate. For the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and out and find pasture. The thieves come only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, or as some of your Bibles say, have it more abundantly. So there's a second type. Of, of sheep pen. And it's not the city sheep pen, it's the one out in the fields. And, and, and this is a picture of, of a sheep pen that they've dated back to around the time of Jesus. And as you can see, at the very center of it right here, there's a what? An opening, right? There's an opening right there in the center. And the words that Jesus used here, in, in the context in which Jesus is using them, is he's saying, I am the gate. He says, I'm the door to this pen. And what shepherds would do out in the field is, is literally they would set themselves in the middle of this opening and they themselves would function as the gate to let the sheep in and out or to keep out predators. They put themselves in front of the sheep. And he's saying, look, all these sheep that you think you're in charge of, all these sheep that you, that you think that you're the door to God for them. He goes, no, 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 you're the robbers. He said, I am the door. I am the only access point to Jesus or to God or to salvation. He said, I'm it. He said, it is my job as the shepherd to protect. It is my job as the shepherd to defend, to love, to care for. And he's having this conversation with them because they think they've got the authority to kick this guy out of the house. And Jesus says, it's not your house to kick anybody out of. He said, it's mine. Jesus is our door to our forever home. So what do we learn from all of this today? Real quickly, we'll talk about a few things. First one is this, there's no other way home but through Jesus. There's no other way home but through Jesus. And I believe that because you're here this morning, because you're uh, singing and worshiping, that, that all of you, I hope, all of you, I hope, to some degree, believe this statement. That to some degree, you believe this statement. But a recent Gallup poll says that 65 of American Christians, and that's just people who claim Christianity, 
as their belief across the country. 65% of Christian Americans believe that there are multiple paths to God. Now, how can this be true and this be true? Can it? Can Jesus be the only way, but there also be multiple ways to God? This is yes, this is no, this is I'm not voting. So here's the problem. The reason that 65%, and I believe because of the date of this poll, that that number has probably grown, the reason is because the devil is great at telling us lies. I believe Scripture tells us, and I hope you believe, that Jesus is the only way to the Father. He's the only way into that home that we always have wanted to be a part of forever and ever. But the reason that so many people think that, hey, there may be other ways, is because of Satan. Because Satan is so good at getting you to believe things that aren't true, that you don't need to believe. And so three things that I think kind of get us into this idea uh, to, to maybe find a different way, or there's multiple ways. And the first one is this, people will be fine without Jesus. That's his first law. People will be fine without Jesus. Um, think about your family. Think about your neighbors. Think about your kids. Maybe even your spouse. Your parents. Do you have people in your life that don't have that salvation relationship with Jesus? And how does it affect you? You know, I think... Another way to think about this for just a moment is we tell ourselves about people who, who aren't Christians, that we love, we use this phrase, that they're good people. You know what? Riley, man, I tell you what, Riley doesn't have a relationship with God, but you know what? Riley's a good guy. I mean, I mean, there, there's really not a whole lot different and Riley and myself, I've got a relationship with God, Riley Dutton, but he's just as good of a guy as I am. And so because I think he's a good guy, you know what? I just let it ride. I'm not going to stir the pot. I'm not going to create conflict. But you see, if I truly believe that Jesus is the only way, I'm not going to be fine with Riley not having a relationship with Jesus. It's going to be my mission. I'm going to make sure that I do everything that I can to see to it that Riley has a relationship with God. That my parents have a relationship with God. That my siblings have a relationship with God. That my co-workers have a relationship with God. We've been given a great command. What is that great command? To go out and what? Make disciples. To go out and baptize people. Are we doing it? Are you doing it? I think the reason we struggle with it is because Satan has been really good with this law of convincing us that people are fine without Jesus. And it's maybe not in that statement. It's maybe things like, hey, but they're good people. But because of this law, people, people aren't as sold out on Jesus. Here's another one. And I believe this one may be the most relevant thing that we talk about all day long. One of the lies that Satan tells us is that you can only respect people you agree with. You can only respect people you agree with. If you turn on the news and you watch the news in our country, regardless of which way you lean politically, do you know what is missing in our, in our news coverage, in our political system, and even in our relationship with other people maybe more than anything? It's the fourth word in this statement. What is it? Respect. 
Our society has convinced us that if we disagree on something, that we can't respect each other. That we have to fight, we have to fuss, and we have to have conflict. And that is a very challenging thing. Because if I don't respect you, if, I, if, if Riley, I'm just going to pick on Riley this morning because he's an easy subject right there. If Riley and I disagree on something, and I don't respect Riley because of what we disagree on, how am I ever going to share Jesus with him? Is he going to listen to me talk about Jesus if he knows I don't respect him? Never. But yet our society tells us, hey, just get over here in this little group of people that you agree with and that, that you all see eye to eye on all these things and let all these other people do their thing, okay, and just leave it there. And just, just, you can't respect them. Uh-uh, don't, don't respect them. Because they believe that Satan has told us that, that we can't be that way. And he's done it by doing, okay, this is, this is a problem that we have in our country, is, is the worldview tells us that I have to be open-minded, and I have to be open-minded in this way. I have my convictions, but I also accept yours. That that's the world's definition of open-mindedness. And that causes a lot of conflict within us, right? Causes a lot of conflict within us. Because I have my convictions, and you have your convictions, and when they start to rub up against each other, that's when conflict and, and, and respect issues kind of go out the window. But the world says this, hey, have your convictions, but your convictions better not interfere, interfere with my convictions. You just have your convictions, but also accept mine. And, and that, is, that is all over our society right now. Let me just ask you an honest question. How many of you, that just kind of drives you crazy, that mindset, have your convictions, but you better accept my convictions as well. How many of you, just be honest, that that just dropped, Brian's the only honest person in this room. How do we deal with that as Christians? What is open-mindedness really in view of Christ? Well, it's this. I have my convictions, and I love you regardless of yours. I have my convictions. My number one conviction is this in context of our lesson. Jesus is the only way. Everything else in my life is built around that. And inevitably, I'm going to come across people who feel differently. But what does Scripture tell me above all else? Regardless of whether we agree on things, we have to what? Say it out loud. We have to what? Love. We're all about book, chapter, verse, and commands, right? The greatest command is what? Love. Now, is it easy to love people who believe so much differently than you? No, it's not easy. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do. We talked about Alabama and Auburn basketball in class with Dylan and Sydney, and they almost sat on separate side of the rooms in 30 seconds of the conversation. Okay? I have my conviction, you have yours, and despite the difference, I'm going to love you. And when the world sees us living that, I'm not accepting it. I'm still pointing you to Christ, but in the process, I'm going to love you above everything else. When the world sees us loving in that way, when everybody else is backbiting and fighting and, and, and arguing, when they see us love, that's when our light begins to shine so, so bright. Okay? So... Don't fall into the lie. Live the love. We're running out of time. Here we go. You aren't fit to help someone else find God. Another lie that the devil tells us 
to keep this idea going is he says, hey, look, yeah, Jesus may be the way, but you're not the one that's going to show them. You can't do that. You, you, you can't leave. Do you know what your past looks like? Do, do, do you? Do you know the problems you've had? You think you can show someone Jesus? The devil tells us that over and over and over and over. So this morning as we're coming to church, I'd read about this earlier this week as I'm kind of studying and researching for the sermon, and I wasn't going to mention it, but then I saw it this morning, and I saw all of that. Maybe the Holy Spirit was like, go ahead and make this point because it's neat. The Greyhound Bus Company, how many of you are make it a habit to travel on the Greyhound Bus? At one time, it was a big deal, right? But now we're going to fly, we're going to drive, we're, you know, bus travel is not as big as it was at one point in our country. But I saw this Greyhound Bus driving through town this morning, and I thought, where in the world are they going that they've come through? Haleville, Alabama. Are they lost? Um, but Greyhound has this program. Let's see if I can find the name of it. Greyhound has this program called the Home Free Program. And what they will do is they will provide a free bus ticket to any runaway child or teenager at any place at any time. If any runaway child or teenager goes and finds a bus station and says, I want to go home. Greyhound bus will put them on a bus and they will take them home. They bring home on average over 400 lost, not lost, runaway children and teenagers every year. There's a lot of programs like this out there in our country, but Greyhound has one of the biggest ones. And I couldn't help but think as I was reading and thinking about it this week about how many people are spiritually homeless. They're just spiritually homeless. They're lost. They've walked away from God and said, I don't want this because they've been hurt. They've been burned by people, not by God. But they've been hurt and they've been burned and they've been treated wrongly by people who claim God's name. They've been kicked out of the family, not by God, but by people. And they are spiritually homeless. And what we are, the connection here is we're the bus. We're the greyhound. Our job is to go out and say, let me take you to the door. I can't make you go in. But we are in the business of taking people from being spiritually homeless to the door of the house and saying, hey, Jesus, this is so-and-so. I want to introduce you. Bringing them to the feet of Jesus. You are fit to help someone else find Jesus. Okay, very quickly, and then we'll be done. Jesus makes life about loving his sheep. Jesus makes life about loving his his sheep. I want you to think for just a moment, very quickly, all the people that you lead. We all lead somebody, right? If you're a parent, you lead children. If you're a grandparent, you have family, grandkids. If you're a teacher, where you work, there's a lot of different ways we could go at it. But think about who you lead in life. You are a shepherd to somebody. And Jesus says through this whole thing, your job is to not be in charge of the sheep. That is not our job. Our job is to not be the keepers of the pen. Our job is to not go around and make sure everybody's doing it the exact right way every single time. We're not taking our checklist and going, well, Riley, you've messed up on this today, this today, this today. You believe this wrong and that wrong. No, that's not our job. Our job is to love. Our job is to love. Jesus makes my life about loving his sheep. Don't sacrifice care for control. Don't think you've got to be in control. Your job is to care 
for one another. Your job is to lift each other up. Your job is that when someone is down, you walk along beside them and you pick them up. Paul says it this way, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So make sure in your life that you make your goal to love the sheep. And when we love each other, we're going to be able to work a whole lot of other things out as long as we're loving the way Jesus wants us to love. Let's close with a word of prayer, and then the lesson will be yours. God, I thank you so much for the chance to just be in your presence today, to be with you and, and to worship you and, and sing to you and to pray to you and commune with you, God. God, I thank you so much for Jesus being the door to the house. Help us to not misunderstand our role and our place. Help us to understand that, our, that we are sheep and that he is our shepherd. Help us to always just follow him. Help us to love in the way that Jesus loves. Help us to accept in the loving, pure way that Jesus accepted. Help us to just let our light shine. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thou art giving and forgiving, ever blessing, ever blessed. Thank you again for joining us, and please consider subscribing to our YouTube channel or our podcast. We can be found on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast provider. Also, leave us a five-star review, which will greatly assist in getting the message of God's love and salvation to others. You can also follow us on Facebook. Instagram. And Twitter. Be sure to join us again. And until then, remember to love like Jesus. Man to man.